On behalf of Chess, I'd like to welcome you to the July 2017 podcast. I'm Kyle Hogarth from the University of Chicago, editor of the podcast section. Thanks for joining us today for what's going to be another terrific conversation and a lively debate. My first guest is Dr. Mark Zucker, Director of Cardiothoracic Transplantation Programs at Newark Beth Israel Medical Center and the Clinical Professor of Medicine for Rutgers University, New Jersey Medical School. He's here to present his article, Point, Should Wireless Pulmonary Artery Hemodynamic Monitoring Be Used to Monitor Patients with Pulmonary Hypertension? Yes. Mark, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. And my next guest... To argue the opposite side is Dr. Dr. Anna Hemnes, Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Allergy, Pulmonary, and Critical Care Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville, Tennessee, and she's here to talk about her article, Should Wireless Pulmonary Artery Hemodynamic Monitoring Be Used to Monitor Patients with Pulmonary Hypertension? No. Anna, thanks for joining us as well. Thanks for inviting me. All right, so guys, at the stage, you know, there's probably a lot of listeners, uh, myself included, who don't know squat about pulmonary hypertension. So set the stage. Why are we having this debate? What, what's the issue at play in regards to, you know, whether we should monitor or not? Like, what are we even needing to monitor, and what's the backstory to this disease state that would even require someone talking about, you know, whether we should do it invasively or wirelessly or et cetera, et cetera? Well, maybe I should leave this one to Anna because she does the pulmonary part and I do the cardiology part. Perfect. <laughs> Why don't we start with Anna and then, Mark, you can chime in as well. But set the stage for us, guys. Pulmonary hypertension um, is a diverse group of diseases, all characterized by increased pulmonary pressure. Um, and in particular, pulmonary arterial hypertension is a primary blood vessel disease of the lungs with normal. Um, pulmonary capillary wedge pressure and no evidence of parenchymal lung disease or clots in the lungs. And unfortunately, there's no way to diagnose pulmonary hypertension or differentiate uh, pulmonary hypertension from left heart disease from the other forms of pulmonary hypertension outside of invasive hemodynamics. Echocardiography is frequently used to give us an estimate of pulmonary arterial pressure. But it's just that it's an estimate. And so uh, right heart catheterization with invasive hemodynamic measures is, is really the gold standard. And so um, as I tell all my patients when they come to see me, I, would, I wish we had a way that we could make this diagnosis without invasive hemodynamics, but uh, that's simply not the case. The echocardiography um, estimates of pulmonary artery pressures really don't always match with what we find in the cath lab, and further, we can't necessarily um, define the wedge pressure from the echocardiography. So uh, right now, we use um, invasive hemodynamics first to diagnose pulmonary hypertension, but also to follow up how our therapies are doing, whether we're successful or we're not successful in treating, in particular, pulmonary arterial hypertension. And of course, that involves patients taking time off from work if they're working. It involves families driving them to the hospital. It involves an invasive procedure, and though the risk is low, um, it, is, it is real. And uh, so it's, it's a burden on patients and their families to undergo invasive hemodynamics with any frequency. In my own practice, I usually recommend right heart catheterization at the time of diagnosis, and then usually about a year after therapy, or sooner if there's clinical concerns um, that therapy is failing. And then on some frequency thereafter, depending on how the patient's doing, usually between every one and two years, we repeat heart catheterizations, or as I mentioned sooner, if there's concerns. So 
So it, it is of real burden to patients and families and has costs for healthcare. So we're always searching for better ways to, in particular, monitor um, patients and their response to therapy. Um, and so wireless pressure monitoring has come up as one way of doing that. Did, let, did let you have anything add. to add? Yeah, no, so Mark, help set the stage a little bit more for us, and then we'll jump into the, you know, the, 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 the debate here. But, um, Mark, what can you add to, to, to that introduction here for us? Well, we've defined pulmonary hypertension, uh, but we really haven't uh, focused yet on the fact that the disease, has had, the disease has an extremely poor prognosis, right? And some of the original data, as everyone seems to know, the survival at five years was probably 35 to 40 percent. And only over the past few years, I would say the past decade or so, have we really seen an explosion in terms of the therapies that are available, and thus the invasive hemodynamic monitoring to evaluate whether or not the therapy is effective uh, is probably going to be used more and more. But as Anna said, it's somewhat inconvenient and it is invasive. So I think the reason we're actually having this discussion is because of some new technologies that have come out that allow us to non-invasively monitor these patients and try to get a sense of their pressures uh, via telemetric data, I guess is a better way of saying it. And I think that's why we're actually here today. As you said earlier, I've taken the position that uh, some of these new implantable devices should be used uh, to help care for these patients with pulmonary hypertension. And the other side is, of course, that these devices are somewhat premature for this, for this indication. So let me ask you guys, what, what is it that in this type of patient we ought to be monitoring? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but some of the newer agents have been approved based on their clinical outcomes in the sense of, you know, six-minute walk test improvements and, and various things like that. Have they really been well-validated on serial right heart catheterization and, and, and pressure changes and pulmonary vascular resistance changes? Actually, I think you're correct. I think virtually everyone has been validated based upon exercise tolerance, six-minute walk, and almost none of them have actually used invasive hemodynamic data to monitor the outcomes. Uh, there's only one or two recent trials that have even looked at some of that information. So yeah, you're absolutely yeah. Go ahead. Okay. I, I so then you're, if you're absolutely correct. And, and moreover, um, other people like Steve Kaywood had looked at whether those trials that did incorporate some cluster of patients that had invasive hemodynamics, whether those correlated with change in six-minute walk or other outcomes. And it doesn't really look like invasive hemodynamic changes correlate with outcomes in PAH trials, PAH drug trials. Recognizing the limitation that those invasive hemodynamic measurements are made in a steady state at a single point in time. Right. Right. So, I mean, and so you'll forgive the analogy for one second, but it, it is a, a non-pulmonary hypertension guy. If we're in the idea of any level of monitoring, whether invasive or non-invasive, but if it's to look at numbers, but none of our, our interventions have ever really looked at numbers, do we know what even these changes in numbers would mean as far as clinical outcomes for our patients and, more importantly, longevity? Or maybe that's part of the point is so we could learn more about the disease if we had more numbers. Or maybe I'm getting into both your points. <laughs> well, I was just about to say that. that I think actually in the, in the commentary I made that point, which is, is that part of the reason to obtain some of this information is because we quite honestly don't actually know how much this information is going to help us care for these patients. It may not help at all. It may shed, you know, it may open up a whole new world of information that up until now we weren't even aware existed. 
I think the key thing is that though the those invasive hemodynamic metrics that are really tightly linked to survival are right atrial pressure and cardiac output, and uh, the invasive hemodynamic monitors primarily measure pulmonary artery pressures, which are not as closely linked to outcomes in pulmonary arterial hypertension in particular. Um, in part because as patients get more and more advanced disease and the, the cardiac output fails, the pulmonary artery pressure may decrease as a function of reduced cardiac output. So I would actually agree with that, and I think I even made that point in the paper. My only uh, comment uh, with respect to that is that right atrial pressure tends to be a little bit less variable than pulmonary artery pressures over time, and so you mm-hmm. can use that information perhaps from a prognostic point of view you can get a measurement at point A, point B, and point C. It's much harder to get a pressure measurement in terms of pulmonary pressures and say, I know what that means. But if you are able to measure it on a daily basis over a period of time, you might actually find that the PA pressures have value. It's just we don't know that yet, and it's been very hard to find out because you obviously can't do right heart catheterization every single day in your patient to figure out what's actually happening. So while I'm in agreement that the only proven data point at this moment in time is right atrial pressure, I suspect that we will find that pulmonary pressures do have DP, DT, pulmonary pressures themselves, the various components of the pulmonary uh, pressure will someday be valuable. But we don't know that yet. So, so it's part of this debate, obviously, is the issue is, is what to monitor, I suppose, and then also how to monitor. And... Um, so let's let's start at least from the beginning, and, and you know, then now we've set the stage as far as you know what kind of things we'd be looking for. And, and, and Mark, why don't you make some of the points about what would be um, good about doing uh, wireless pulmonary artery monitoring, um, and, and then you know we'll, we'll hear the counterpoints uh, from Anna. But along the same line, are, are we talking continuous? Is this the idea that you'd have that it would be a you know a kind of a continuous tele output from one of our patients, or are you envisioning? Uh, as far as kind of framing this debate, you know, very, you know a daily update or, you know, I, I, uh, the patient can send in a, something at, at, at will. I mean, at some point, isn't there also the possibility of just a pure data overload? So let, let me backtrack for a second. I yeah, think. please. Right. The, the CardioMens device is not really a continuous data acquisition point that I can watch what's happening at all points during the day. Right, and say, oh, it's now 10 o'clock in the morning, my PA pressure is XYZ. Oh, it's now 4 o'clock in the afternoon, my PA pressure is DEF. That is not the way the system is designed at this moment in time. It gives you basically daily reports. It doesn't give you every minute of the day that the patient can see how they're doing. Right, so I, we have to accept that this is a first-generation device, and the information and the algorithms are first-generation algorithms providing first-generation information. Uh, but from a concept point of view, you asked me, why is it that I think this is a value? And the reason I think it's a value is because it does allow us or will shortly in the next generation device allow us to look at uh, hemodynamics with exercise during ambulation at multiple points during the day uh, rather than simply saying, uh, I took the patient to the cardiac catheterization laboratory and in a semi-resting state, in a fasting state, possibly sedated, I got the following pressures which may be very, very misleading. And the challenge that I think we've been facing here is is that sometimes these patients have acceptable pressures, yet they seem to progress in spite of the fact that the pressures seem to be controlled when we look at them in the cath lab. And it may very well be that we're not actually knowing, we don't actually know what's happening on an ongoing basis. 
and the cardiologist in me would tell you that we see this with systemic blood pressure, not infrequently when we take a blood pressure meet, uh, reading in a physician's office or at home and compare that data to ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And when you look at the ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, you see a completely different story than what the one static measurement means, uh, reports. So I think the reason I, I believe that this device and these technologies are valuable is because they're going to shed a whole new set of information uh, on the information that we have at this moment in time. Anna, what do you think? I think that it is true that we are going to learn a lot about the pulmonary vasculature from these devices. And as my colleague said, um, right now we just don't know how much variability there is in pulmonary artery pressure over the course of a day, um, diurnal variation, and also how much, as you said, uh, response to therapy can be attributed to simple changes in anxiety or other states. Um, and so I, I think that we will learn a lot from these, from these devices and from the information that it's going to give us. Um, but I, I, I don't think that it, we, we know how we're going to use that information right now. So it, it, to me, it, it strikes me that it is going to be a fascinating research tool. Um, and I'm really looking forward to understanding more about the pulmonary vasculature and the effects of exercise and pH-directed therapy on pulmonary artery pressures from these, but I, but I don't think that it's useful to me as a clinician just today yet because I just well, don't it, know what to do with the information. It may actually be the other way around, I suppose. Right? We could say that we may not know what to do if the pulmonary pressures come down because we don't always know what's going on, but we may be able to say that we've given the patient XYZ uh, milligrams of drug A, B, or C, and after two weeks, four weeks on therapy, there has been no change, in which case you might deem the therapy to be ineffective so perhaps the original use, the initial use of the device won't be to say we've been effective, but possibly the other way around to say that our intervention has been ineffective. Yes, that's true. What, let me ask you, what's involved with getting one of these devices? What's the procedure like? What are the risks to this? Uh, we're dealing with people at risk for thrombosis, you know, clot infection, or infection, I mean, excuse me, um, you know, what, what, I mean, uh, who puts them in? Is this done in interventional radiology or is this a surgery or are they put in by you guys? It's generally put in uh, by either the cardiologist. Uh, most places use electrophysiologists. We use heart failure people. Uh, it's not very technically challenging. Uh, those people who use the going to place right heart catheterizations, uh, swans and do right heart catheterizations, should be able to do this without much difficulty. It's a little bit hard in some states to get this done. I realize that the audience listening to this podcast could be international, but at least in 11 or 12 states, it's not approved by Medicare at this moment in time, and that's for the heart failure indication, recognizing that we're proposing here to use the device for a non-approved indication, which is not to keep a heart failure patient out of the hospital, but to monitor a patient with pulmonary hypertension, be it pulmonary arterial or pulmonary venous. So it's very unlikely, I think, that this is going to get approved in the near term by Medicare or the insurance companies, the routine implantation in pulmonary artery, uh, in pulmonary arterial hypertension patients. We have trouble right now in New Jersey and in all of the states that are covered by Novitas uh, to get this implanted. How's it working for our heart failure patients? I mean, if, in other words, you know, Again, I want, I want the, the listeners to understand 
what it is we're actually monitoring with this device and what it's, you know, and then how it got approved for a, uh, an LV dysfunction patient and what its goal and purpose was and whether that does translate. And, and, and I think, you know, Mark, you're making a point, and, maybe, and uh, Anna, too, both of you are making the same point of there's the potential for a lot of valuable data, um, and, and maybe the crux of this debate centers around whether this is remotely ready for clinical prime time in the pulmonary hypertension type of patient, or whether or not this is a wealth of opportunity from a research perspective to answer a whole, a whole ton of questions that it sounds like the pulmonary hypertension field is, is dying to have answered. So it's not very different, I suppose, than the politics of America, right? Right. The, the Republicans have a very strong position in one direction, and the Democrats have a very strong position in the other direction. But most of America is actually probably in the middle. And <laughs> you assigned us, you know, a point counterpoint, which says the position is no or the position is yes. But in truth, I think both of us would tell you that we probably have a position that's much closer to each other than the published articles would suggest, that the answer is somewhere in the middle. Right? There's an excellent opportunity for research the companies would be more than happy to support it at this moment in time. They are working on next-generation algorithms to help us get a better sense of RV function rather than just pulmonary artery pressures alone, right? And that uh, you're also correct that it's probably not ready for, you know, widespread use, at least not in the pulmonary arterial hypertension population. As to the pulmonary venous hypertension population or the heart failure population, uh, it, is taken, it has taken off a bit more slowly than I think the company actually predicted, but that's perhaps due to insurance issues as well as anything else. Uh, the whole goal of this was uh, that 25% uh, of heart failure patients are readmitted within 30 days of discharge from a hospitalization for heart failure, and within, I think it's uh, six months or a year, maybe it's a year, 65 to 70% of people are admitted, readmitted within the year. And so the argument was if we could find a way of recognizing that they're developing heart failure before they develop clinical heart failure, we could adjust the diuretics and keep them out of the hospital. Uh, it actually did prove to be true uh, from the trial. The trial, which is known as the champion trial, had a lot of critics because of the design of the trial, but it was subsequently studied in additional papers and additional review. And it does look like this device can reduce hospitalizations, or I should say re-hospitalizations for patients with heart failure. So my sense is, is that inevitably this device or a variation on the theme it will probably become part of the routine repertoire uh, for patients who have advanced heart failure. We're not there yet in heart failure, and it's certainly the case that we're not there at all yet in pulmonary arterial hypertension. And what do you think? I completely agree. I think that the data is certainly more advanced and uh, more compelling in the um, left heart failure population. And in that population, a pulmonary artery pressure monitoring device makes a lot of sense. Of course, the pulmonary artery diastolic pressure rises proportionally to wedge pressure right. in left heart failure, and wedge pressure is what drives hospitalization. So something that could tell you that the pulmonary artery pressure or the mean pressure or diastolic pressure is rising would be an important surrogate for those things that are driving hospitalization. So it makes sense that it would work in left heart failure, um, but it, I feel like that data just isn't there yet presently in the pulmonary arterial hypertension side for the reasons that I mentioned before. Um, it's not to say that it won't 
potentially be useful one day. I, I just think that, as as he said, that there's not really presently uh, consensus or compelling data that it would be useful in pulmonary arterial hypertension. There are only small case studies of individuals who have used some of the original hemodynamic monitors that were implanted. Uh, none of them were much more than, you know, 15, 20, 25 patients. Uh, and so we really don't have any large trials to look at the role of this. And uh, as we spoke about earlier in, in the discussion, uh, measurement of hemodynamics is not usually part of the drug trials uh, that have been, you know, performed to try to get a drug to market. I don't know if that's because there was really no way of doing it from a practical point of view. No IRB would allow six, you know, measurements up to six months or 12 weeks, and uh, most patients wouldn't tolerate six or 12 measurements of their hemodynamics over 12 weeks. So it may not be that it has no value as much as it's just not practical or has not been practical up until this point in time. Well, well part expensive. of the reason why the yeah there's expense and there's the the um, requirements that the FDA has for approving drugs. So the markers of fields functions or survives that it uses to approve drugs. Primarily, there's um, six minute walk distance as a close surrogate for survival, and then there's mortality. And hemodynamics have really never been shown to be a surrogate within a drug trial. So. Um, hemodynamics are often used in phase two trials to decide whether to move forward with a phase three trial that's pivotal in PAH drugs, but the phase three trials are usually aimed at these um, time to clinical worsening now or change in six-minute walk distance because those are the metrics that are used by the FDA to approve drugs, whereas hemodynamics just aren't. The FDA actually said a few years back that don't tell us what the numbers are. Tell us whether the patient got better. Right. Uh, that's really the gist of it. We don't want to hear that. I mean, we saw this with even the LVAD trials. So, you know what? You improve the cardiac output, but did the patient live any longer? Right. right. Dying, dying with better labs is still dead. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so it's interesting, too, though, because I think it was pointed out that, that, that even in the guidelines for pulmonary hypertension, there's, there's not a, correct me if I'm wrong, is there a consensus on when to redo a right heart cath um, on a patient, other than, you know, Anna, I think you pointed out, like, if you have a clinical deterioration and it's unclear as to the etiology, you'll, you know, you'll do a right heart cath as sort of part of your, you know, your clinical evaluation of the patient, but is there a, is there a standard of care or, or a set of guidelines that say, yes, every year, you know, every two years, whatever, um, does that exist? No. Outside of just needing it for initial diagnosis. Correct. Yes, right, right. For, for diagnosis, yeah. yes. Or whatever your local program's policies and guidelines may be, but not a consensus on a national level. Right. There's nothing at a national level, right, or international level. Or international, correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, yeah. um, okay, so... What what do you think we could get from this? Because I'll, I'll play devil's advocate for one second. You know, as a, uh, when I was in my training for critical care, you know, the right heart catheter was the entrance requirement to get into the ICU. And now, anytime we have to place one, I got to go find one and take the dust off. Um, and so, <laughs> and uh, you know, I was very much trained on a garbage in, garbage out phenomenon in regards to, you know, the one problem when someone says algorithms. If you don't have good data going in, the numbers being spit out are useless. And so I always get worried about we're taking one piece of data 
on whether or not this thing has been calibrated correctly, and then a whole bunch of things that clinicians are going to use to manage a complex patient. You know, if that first piece of data is garbage, I don't care how great your algorithm is. So that's my devil's advocate to you both um, in regards to one measurement in a pulmonary artery. Can we really take that data and tell us that we can find some valuable information about what's really happening in the right atrium and the right ventricle? Well, I'll make the first observation, which was made back in the early 1980s by Milton Packer, who was a heart failure cardiologist, and still is, in fact, uh, who demonstrated very nicely that one measurement of a right heart cath in a heart failure patient, not pulmonary artery hypertension, arterial hypertension, uh, is not accurate unless you send them upstairs to the unit and let them rest for 6 or 12 hours and relook at those numbers perhaps the next morning. And we see this all the time because by virtue of what I do for a living, which is evaluate people for heart transplantation and lung transplantation, we do routine right heart catheterizations. And you'll see in the cath lab with a heart failure patient, 68 or 75 over 35, you will send them upstairs to the ICU, and the next morning it's 45 over 26. And nothing's changed, but the anxiety of the procedure has gone away. And so you are 100% correct when you say that, you know, garbage in, garbage out, if you accept the data point of one quick right heart catheterization that lasts 15 minutes, you may actually be, be misled by the numbers that you get. Not usually misled low, usually misled high. Interesting. That's a whole different yeah, debate, but are, but, but are we overdiagnosing the disease then on a completely different, uh, <laughs> based on that? Well, but we're selecting people that we already know from echo estimates and other stories that they likely have. That's true. You do have a pretest probability, I suppose, right? right. pretest probability. <laughs> and also the mean pulmonary artery pressure of 25 millimeters of mercury is probably a lot higher than normal, so you, the bar is pretty high. That, that's correct. You know, we set that number, but that's somewhat arbitrary already. It's probably already abnormal. Mm-hmm. So, so if the two of you were going to start to try to use this device in a, in a research setting, you know, that, that you were going to do a, an investigator-initiated study or you were consulting with the company or the NIH is going to do some massive, you know, et cetera, what, which WHO class of, of pulmonary hypertension would you want to include? All of them or there's a group that you'd say, ah, I'm, not, I'm not so sure this would be useful. Um, you know, where would you, where would you want to start? Well, I can say one group that I would probably not include. I guess I'll start in the negative. I think it's very hard to treat the chronic thromboembolic pulmonary hypertension people, irrespective of whether you know the numbers or you don't know the numbers, and you can unfortunately uh, mislead yourself into believing that uh, even this intervention hasn't helped when it might help a different population. So I would certainly exclude that group from the analysis, and I would probably leave it at the moment to the classic uh, you know, group one patients disregarding the fact that we already have approval for group two. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would agree. I think the, the first question that I would ask is, how much variability is there in pulmonary arterial pressure over the course of, day, of a day and also with activity in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension? I think that's really the first important question that we could answer. The sec- second is, how does um, pulmonary arterial pressure change in uh, concert with volume status, so if patients are admitted with right heart failure, what happens to their pulmonary artery pressure? It's possible it could go down just because the RV is so dysfunctional at that point. So I think knowing those small pieces of information would be incredibly informative. And then the next question after those is what happens with drug therapy? And I'd probably start with uh, the most aggressive therapy with prostaglandin or 
parenteral prostaglandin therapy and see what happens to pulmonary arterial pressure in that context. So if cardiac output goes up, pulmonary artery pressure may, in fact, go up. Um, and it would be interesting to know if that is, in fact, what happens. And it would, I think, guide clinicians as they sort of think about how to interpret changes in pulmonary artery pressure in patients who are getting treatment for PAH. Um, Intuitive, so. Intuitively, you would think that perhaps the population might be the sicker population. But the truth is that the group that might actually benefit might be the less sick population that you can control over a long period of time and that the battle is already lost perhaps for the very, very advanced you know, class four patient. And so yeah. while you might say, oh, I'd love to know if I can improve this patient's pulmonary hemodynamics, it may be over anyway. As Anna said, the right ventricle is already failing. The population that would benefit the most is the early population. I and mean, we learned this in cardiology in a different way when we took patients in true cardiogenic shock and put a balloon pump in and they died right? because they were already dying. Yeah. You know, if you put a balloon pump in a bit earlier when they weren't dying, they actually lived. And so I would argue that if we did a trial, it should probably be the class two, early class three. And I don't mean the who groups. I mean the classes, you know, right, New York Association class patients that might actually benefit the most by saying we caught them early enough, we watched them, we tracked it, and we controlled it. The downside, of course, is, is that no company is going to want to do a nine-year trial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Too bad. Yeah. Well, let me ask you another question. Um, right now, you know, given that you, you said there's, there's some limits to getting these devices uh, within the U.S., but are either of you, do you have any patients that somehow have obtained one of these and you are following and treating for pulmonary hypertension? Are you able to be gathering even anecdotal data, recognizing the limits of that? But do you have any anecdotal experience right now that you can throw into the discussion? Nothing else to wet the whistle? <laughs> Let me ask you the question of what you mean. I mean, yes, we have heart failure patients with this device, but you're specifically asking about the PAH patients. Yes, I am. I am. Sorry, I apologize. The PAH. Yeah. And the heart failure patients where it's, it's approved for and, and the indication looking for prevention of readmissions for, you know, heart failure exacerbation, um, I'm, depending on, like you already stated, insurance and where, what the Medicare rules are in that state, there's an indication and, you know, there's potentially a, a, a fairly large cadre of patients walking around. But if you go past that and, and look at not that group of patients, but ones that are uh, in a different WHO class um, for pulmonary hypertension, do you all, are you all aware of anybody where this, this, this data is potentially out there? And again, limited, but anecdotes still have some power to at least make us think and, and explore the research component of this. I do not have any PAH patients with this device. I do have a patient who originally had pulmonary venous hypertension because of longstanding heart failure. Uh, but interestingly, sometimes when you do the transplant, the pulmonary hypertension doesn't completely go away, and you're left with PA pressures in the 50s, even though the wedge is not that high anymore, suggesting that the disease is probably a mixed bag. Uh, and in that particular patient, I can tell you that the CardioMEMS device was in place, and since we did routine endomyocardial biopsies and right heart catheterizations to monitor the heart transplant, we had weekly data on the right heart numbers, and that data correlated beautifully with the CardioMEMS numbers. So from Great. a reliability point of view and how accurate it is, it's actually quite accurate and quite reliable. Now, she obviously didn't need it anymore because she had a heart transplant, but right. I had the data anyway. 
Right, of course. No, I, I, like I said, it's the beauty of the anecdote. It's supposed to wet the whistle. <laughs> <laughs> Anna, what do you yeah, think? I don't have any patience with it. I've just read um, some publications, like Ray Benza's publication, um, right. but that's it. I, no, I don't have any. No, but you suggested if we were to do a trial, when we hang up, we're going to call each other back. Right. Right, because <laughs> we've made it. <laughs> It'd be good. Well, well, it strikes me that there's, a, there's an interest here. I mean, from a perspective of whether this is something the NIH wants to grab, whether this is something the manufacturers think and, and listen to this and argue that there's a, there's a potential market here, or whether it's, you know, the, the small investigator-initiated phenomenon and, you know, the two of you and, and two more of your friends and, voila, four centers putting it into, you know, 20 patients each and just gathering data on a, on a fact-finding mission, if you will. Um, you know, there's, a, there's a, I think, an inherent value here because the, if the technology is there and it has at least the potential in a, in a different, you know, arterially, arterial slash cardiac disease, you know, it's, it's not a massive leap of faith to think there'd be something there. And I think that's, that's the one common ground the two of you definitively had, even in your writing, where, you know, there's, there's at least something that we could learn, right? And I think the whole debate is whether this is ready for prime time, but whether or not there's something for us to learn, I think the answer is definitively yes. Well, you yes, know, it, exactly. I think it comes from the, what was it, quote in Beauty and the Beast, there's something there that wasn't there before. <laughs> and, and, and that may very well be the case here. What do you think, yeah. Anna? <laughs> I think that's a really good point. I'm not sure I can top that. <laughs> I, w- I would just add there, but what about Donald Rumsfeld, unknown unknowns? There you go. One thing I, I think is probably critical in this, uh, and you mentioned Ray Benza, right, and uh, I'll mention some of the other names. Uh, this is not a project that's done strictly by pulmonary or cardiology. This is a research project that's done jointly by both together, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, very successful pH programs often have both parties working together on this in a somewhat transparent manner who sees the patient, the pulmonologist or the cardiologist, isn't always all that critical, right? And the contacts that we would have with St. Jude's, who makes the CardioMEMS device, are far more likely to be contacts on the cardiology side than on the pulmonary side. And so it's going to be a collaborative effort, inevitably, when we do do this between pulmonary and cardiology, probably at each center. I think that increases the validity as well, right? I mean, I'm getting the impression that, again, is not a member of that field, but there seems to be some level of a turf battle, for lack of a better term. Um, And if nothing else, the, the combined approach especially when we're trying to learn something new, is probably better for everybody. Well, that's because programs spring up in whatever is unique to their own, their own institution. Right. right. There's probably a historical bias there. Right. right. Just, it, it comes from the history of the institution. Fair enough. What haven't we talked about, guys? I mean, you know, for our readers, you know, to, to, to both your credit, you know, you guys just didn't essentially reread your article on the phone. So to our listeners, um, you know, definitely go read the point counterpoint. There's a, there's a, it's a fantastic discussion and really dives, I think, into the, to the literature on this. But, but what haven't we talked upon, guys, that we should expand on, if anything? I think we've, I think, rounded this out pretty nice, but I want to give both of you kind of that final thought uh, scenario and be respectful of your time as well. Well, you know, there's so much anything. to talk about, but if you're asking, did we miss any of the most important and most salient points, I don't actually think so. I think we covered most of it either directly or tangentially at some point along the way. Anna, same thing? 
Yeah, I agree. I think you did a great job of covering the topic. All right, guys. Well, I, that, you know, I, I promised you at the beginning we'd talk for roughly a half an hour, give or take, and I think we just went over the 30-minute mark, so that's perfect. And and this was exactly as I expected, a really great conversation. Uh, you know, anytime you get to talk about, uh, you know, hemodynamics, you know, I think this is the, the one world where the, the pulmonologists and the cardiologists both find their mutual love, and that's hemodynamics. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so always, always <laughs> a great discussion. <laughs> Thank you so much. Ah, perfect, guys. Thanks so much. Have a great day.